Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 500. Wow. As part of our Smithsonian Associates streaming series, our guest today is Dr. Graham Schwig. Dr. Graham Schwig will be appearing via Zoom at the Smithsonian Associates program titled The Bhagavad Gita, Ancient Wisdom for Today's World. For details about Dr. Schwig's presentation, please check out our website. Today we'll be talking about the wonderful books after the Bible and the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the most beloved of sacred texts in the world. Dr. Graham Schwig is a professor of religion at Christopher Newport University and is a published translator of the Bhagavad Gita, which illuminates some of the exquisite passages in this Hindu philosophical poem and examines their rich narrative content. We'll be talking about all that and more today, but Dr. Graham Schwig provides an overview of the story behind the text, its major themes, and reveals how a work created around the second century AD poignantly addresses the universal problems of the human condition. The intrinsically conflicted soul and the mix of happiness and suffering, goodness and evil, and beauty and horror that the world holds. These dichotomies are symbolized by the dilemma of the protagonist, Arjuna, whose heart is shattered as he is about to engage in a battle against evil and that also pits him against those he loves. Experience how the Bhagavad Gita's timeless voice of wisdom and compassion can speak to the challenges of the modern world today. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, episode number 500, Dr. Graham Schwig. Dr. Graham Schweig, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. It is really, uh, I think, going to be a, a wonderful conversation. We're going to, we're going to, of course, talk about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation related to your work around the Bhagavad Gita. And I wonder if we can start with just you briefly telling us about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and in particular, maybe tell us how you're going to use Zoom. We're all using Zoom these days, and, and maybe you'll tell us a little bit about how you plan to use Zoom to engage our audience. The use of Zoom is not new to me because I'm crazy enough to have two faculty positions uh, 3,000 miles apart. <laughs> so I teach at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, but am you know, situated here in Virginia with my undergraduates. So in in Berkeley, I teach uh, uh, master's and doctoral students, and here I teach undergraduates. Mm. So uh, what I've been doing in the past is I used to fly out for the start of the course and use Zoom for the rest. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, now, of course, the whole course is Zoomed. Uh-huh. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, it's an easy medium for me to use, and I'm very comfortable with it. And uh, here at the Smithsonian, though, out of the three dozen lectures, invited lectures I've done over the last 14 years, I've never done an online mm-hmm. talk for mm-hmm. the Smithsonian. So in that regard, it's new. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to this. And so we're going to be talking about the Bhagavad Gita today with you. And of course, uh, during your upcoming presentation, December 8th. Uh, so really right around the corner I think most of our audience is going to be familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, but why don't you tell us maybe two or three of the major themes around the Bhagavad Gita and tell us perhaps why why it is important for us to understand this a bit. Great. Well, I have been reading the Bhagavad Gita for five decades. Mm. And 
I, in addition to being equipped to read it in the Sanskrit, the original Sanskrit, which uh, is uh, one of the rigorous kinds of training I received back in in my uh, days of study, I have been incredibly interested in it as far as how it teaches us about yoga and yoga philosophy, uh, the vision of yoga, and so on. And I do a lot of teaching of that sort of thing in yoga, yoga teacher trainings. Mm. But, you know, the thing that amazed me is it was not until I translated the Bhagavad Gita myself for publication that I realized there were themes and messages in the Gita that I had not uh, picked up in the four prior decades before translating and publishing it. Mm. This was quite shocking to me, Paul, because, I mean, I really thought I knew the Bhagavad Gita. And I think that's a sign of a classical text, something that can be read over and over and over and over again, and greater depths of meaning are excavated. And this is really the thrill of, of, a, of a great piece of literature. The themes that I have sort of excavated, I could say are really four major themes. And they're all sort of built one on top of the other. The first is that the Gita is most fundamentally stating that the world suffers from an impoverishment of the heart. Whether it be affluent or poor societies, this impoverishment really is ubiquitous. It's part of the human condition that we just are not fulfilled at the very core of our beings. And so the Bhagavad Gita really launches with that. But again, one has to read carefully into the Gita to perceive this. The second point is Yet the universe, we are taught in the Gita, lovingly embraces all of us. So here's the picture. There's this impoverishment of the heart on the one hand, and yet the universe in the ultimate sense is lovingly uh, and forever embracing us all. There's a kind of... uh, uh, you know, disconnect there. If, if the universe is embracing all of us, how is it that we're in this condition? The third point is, yet the divine most intensely calls each one of us to enter his heart and his loving world, his loving being, and his loving acts. So there's a kind of... Uh, a call, a love call from the universe, from the divine, from reality, ultimate reality, according to the Bhagavad Gita. So while the universe is embracing us, that's not enough even for divinity or for reality. It longs for more. And that's the nature of love. It's the nature of an embrace. An embrace says two things to a person that we embrace. One is that we fully uh, accept that person completely. We, uh, well, we embrace that, all of that person. On the other hand, the embrace says, I want to enter more into the mystery of who you are. So the Gita really teaches us about the nature of love. And the fourth principle then is the practices 
within the most profound levels of yoga lead us to its very perfection as the return embrace of the universe or the reality or the divine. So that's what the Gita is about. It's about how we as humans can return the embrace of the divine. It's really a loving and and beautiful set of scriptures. And I, I wonder if you, I, I, I'm struck as you were describing that, perhaps you'd share with us maybe one of your most beloved verses, perhaps, or, or a verse from the Bhagavad Gita. My gosh, um, uh, do you have a, a few hours? I could rattle <laughs> off so many. It's, they're they're beautiful, beautiful verses. Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, when it comes one that comes to me right away without reciting the Sanskrit is uh, one who sees me everywhere and sees all things in me. To such a person, I have never lost, nor is such a person ever lost to me. Hmm. And this is the kind of loving, embracing, just. Um, uh, there's a kind of fullness of, of uh, a yearning. That's the word I'm looking for. There's a yearning on the part of the divine for our hearts. So the Gita is essentially telling us that the only thing we really have is our own hearts. Everything else, the body is shed at a certain point. We never even had a choice when we came into the body. Um, uh, this life is very fleeting, very, very temporary. The phenomenal world is always in flux and changing. But the one thing that even a God cannot control is the way we feel, is our hearts. And that is the one thing that we can offer to others, the divinity or the divine presence within other living beings and within the humans, as well as to uh, the divine itself. That is beautiful. You've written a very highly rated book on the Bhagavad Gita, the Gita, and it's titled The Beloved Lord's Secret Love Song. Yes. Yeah, and, and so as I was researching you, I, I found that book, and I, I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about maybe what surprised you, maybe pleased you, and, and maybe in light of our current circumstances around the world, maybe gives you hope. The Gita teaches us that whatever is happening in the external world, whatever's happening outside of us, it's going to be messy. Now, I don't think I have to tell you, Paul, or anyone else, that it's pretty messy out there right mm -hmm. now, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's, it's a messy place. There will always be a world of conflict, pain, and suffering out there. The first verse of the Gita really teaches us that in a, in a sort of tacit teaching. Dharma Kshetre, Kuru Kshetre, Samaveta, Yoyatsavaha, Mamaka, Pandavaschaiva, Kimakurvata, Sanjaya. That first verse is just packed with meaning. And it's speaking metaphorically as well as literally. So the blind, evil king asks one question that launches the Gita. And, it, you know, I, I should digress here. It's very funny the way that the Gita begins. Out of the 31,000 plus verses of the Bible, you know, when the Bible starts, it really sounds like a Bible, right? Mm -hmm. God created the heavens and the earth, etc. right? 
And and then, of course, you know, the New Testament, which is part of the 31,000, about 8,000 verses, close to 8,000. It, it, the four Gospels start very scripturally, right? Mm-hmm. Especially John with his Gnostic, you know, uh, sort of uh, uh, resonances. Um, the Word is God, the Word was with God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Quran has 6,236 verses. And it sounds, with the, the first uh, uh, surah, the first chapter, it sounds like uh, a scripture. It invokes the compassionate, all-merciful, all-powerful uh, God, who is Allah and uh, Muhammad as his uh, prophet. And, and so the Gita begins with an evil king, by the way, it has only 700 verses, <laughs> and it begins with an evil king requesting this information. On the field of Dharma, on the field of Kuru, assembled together, desiring to fight, were my sons and the sons of Pandu. How did they act, O Sanjaya? What's interesting here is that this is a civil war. This is a war that was resorted to as a last resort, very last resort, the greater text out of which the Bhagavad Gita comes with only its 700 verses is actually a text of a hundred thousand verses. Mm. So it's larger than the other texts all put together. So, but the, so the Bhagavad Gita is a little bit difficult for Westerners because you're stepping into a story that's already happening. Mm. And we all know what it's like to go into a movie theater in the middle of a movie. Mm-hmm. It's just, the dis, disorienting. But with my introduction, I orient the reader very quickly, just in about a few pages, and they understand that this evil king is in his palace, and he's asking his minister what is happening on the battlefield uh, called uh, Kurukshetra, uh, named after the dynasty of Kurus, uh, from which these warriors on the battlefield come. So it, they're um, a divided kingdom, Boy, does that sound at all familiar with anything that you're... Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. It's a divided kingdom. And the last resort was that they had to go to war. And here was Arjuna on the good guy's side, the righteous side, wanting to see who is representing the evil-minded Dhritarashtra, the king Dhritarashtra, the, the blind, literally blind, congenitally blind, as well as morally blind. So he wants to come out into the middle of the battlefield to see who is on the other side of the battleground before the, uh, the battle starts. And he sees on the other side people he loves, people he reveres, people he respects, people who are his friends. And he's absolutely torn up. He's supposed to go to war with people he loves, but people who represent evil. This, if you've ever known anyone in your life who you loved, and then you found out later that they have very bad ways of being, or they, they you know, it, this is very tormenting, very tormenting. So this is what Arjuna goes through, the protagonist, and he has a meltdown after the first chapter. He's speaking to Krishna, his charioteer, the voice of divinity cleverly disguised as a charioteer, and he empties the contents of his heart to Krishna, and he just is in this irresolvable ethical dilemma. 
and he just sinks down. He drops his bow, drops his arrows, and sinks down into the seat of his chariot. And that's the first chapter. That's the way it launches. And the lesson here, Paul, is that the world will always have these irresolvable ethical conflicts, these dualities, these dualities, um, like pro-choice, pro, you know, pro-life, um, you know, Democratic, Republican. I mean, Home Depot, Lowe's. I mean, that's a silly one, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> right. These dualities, okay? <laughs> right. So, but, but, you know, it's just, it's just the nature of things. It's the nature of things. And the Gita, interestingly enough, Paul, does not solve Arjuna's problem on an external worldly level. What he says is, be a yogi. Go within. Go deep to find your answers there and then come back out into the world with a renewed strength and renewed vision on how to live your life. This is one of the very important, you know, uh, lessons at the very launching of the Gita in the first chapter out of 18 chapters. Now, I can say more here, that just the first few lines, Dharma Kshetri, Kurukshetri, Samaveta Yuyatsabaha, Dharmakshetri, on the field of our true nature, our true inner nature, Kurukshetra, on the field of our outer conditioned nature, Samaveta, these two come together, Yoyatsavaha, in conflict. The human condition can be characterized as one in which we are in conflict with our own inner nature. But sometimes we just don't realize that. And so we're busy acting that out, acting that conflict that's really inward on an outward uh, level or in an outward way. As Gandhi said, if you want to change the world, change yourself. (laughs) We don't realize how powerful in the West, how powerful it is when we change ourselves when we change the way we live, when we change our, our habits, our ways of being, our ways of relating to one another, our ways of relating to the earth and to the, and to the, to, to the other living beings, this can be extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the teachings of the Gita. Arjuna had to change himself to change the war. Many, I think, will associate the Gita with with yoga, but but it is so much more than that. And these dichotomies that you're referring to, these dilemmas that we're facing, they're, they're all around us today. And I wonder if you'd if you'd for a moment just perhaps give our audience some some advice, give them some fresh ideas about how they can apply some of these teachings from the Bhagavad Gita to to their own lives to overcome some of the difficulties that we're facing in the world right now. Yes. Well, the Gita tacitly also teaches that the the challenges and the, the sort of traumatic events and the difficulties and the strains and the conflicts that occur in the, in the world can so easily distract us from the inner journey that we need to take. And the Gita says to Arjuna, or Krishna says to Arjuna, be a yogi. Now, I know most people, when they think of yoga, they're thinking of physically positioning the body. Mm-hmm. That is at best one eighth the practice of yoga. Mm. Be, being a yogi means to be a, 
someone who is truly sensitive to one's inner world and to that extent sensitive to one's outer world. The ability to be sensitive to the thoughts and feelings of others is commensurately possible with one's ability to really know one's own heart and to go deep within the heart. So this is what the Gita is saying is go within. You'll never solve the problems in the outer world fully. The outer world is meant to be a world of conflict, to send us all on a journey inwardly. It's, it, the outer world's never meant to be totally peaceful. It's, it's purposefully unpeaceful and, and conflictual. So that's the way the Gita understands the world. And, you know, and frankly, if any of us could live for a few millennia, you would see the same thing occurring every so often. The conflicts rising, conflicts falling, rising, falling, rising, falling, taking different forms, again, not to diminish how it, it's affecting so many people in, in horrible ways in this, at this time. I don't want to diminish that, uh, mm-hmm. discount that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the Gita is looking at the big picture while we tend to get caught up in our smaller pictures. The Gita shows us how to connect to the big picture by going within. So powerful and and so poignant. And and I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. I'm looking forward to this uh, coming up December 8th, 2020, the Bhagavad Gita, Ancient Wisdom for Today's World. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul, very much. My thanks to Dr. Graham Schwig, who will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Tuesday, December 8th, 2020, 6.30 p.m. And the title of his presentation is The Bhagavad Gita, Ancient Wisdom for Today's World. Please check out the website for more details. My thanks, too, to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. And, of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show audience now with me for 500 episodes. That is awesome. Again, this is episode 500 if you missed that. (laughs) Thanks again for all your love, support, and now friendship. Stay safe, be well, practice smart social distancing, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better show. Thanks, everybody.